How's everybody doing? What a great song. Powerful name of Jesus. Holy cow. My king, your king. I am excited to be here today. My name is Steve Marshman and welcome. If this is your first time here, welcome to those who are online watching the live stream. Welcome to those who are watching afterwards. Just welcome, welcome, welcome because today we're going to talk about Jesus. And I love that. This book of Revelation that we're in is a literary masterpiece by the master, Master Jesus, our king that we just sung about. And man, I, I'm just excited to get into chapter 10 and 11, and that's, that's what we're going to do today, chapter 10 and 11. Next week, by the way, Jose will be back preaching out of chapter 12 and 13, so read ahead for that. But I, I'm excited today because this message is about us, the church. It's, it's super relevant. It's super relevant. So um, I'm excited to be here. So uh, turn to chapter 10. Get ready. This is going to be fast. This is going to be furious. It's going to be fun. And we're going to talk about church. Now, last week, if you were here, if you remember, we talked about the six trumpets. And what comes next? The seventh trumpet. Well, first, though, there's an interlude. Just like between the sixth and seventh seal, there was an interlude. Now there's another interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. So the roadmap for today is we're going to talk about this interlude between the two trumpets, all about the church, and then we'll talk about the seventh trumpet. You guys ready for that? You good? Yeah. It's raining outside, so we might as well be in here talking about Jesus. This is great. I'm going to start with a quote from Dr. Robert Mounts, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Revelation, and he says this, the interludes are not so much pauses in the sequence of events as they are literary devices in which the church us, is instructed concerning its role and destiny during the final period of world history. That is what we're going to talk about today. The church is instructed concerning its role and destiny. If you're a note taker, write those two words down, role and destiny. And if you remember, back in February, Jose spoke on a series, a three-part series called Church Is. If you missed that, go back and listen to it. And Jose explained that church is a house or a temple that imagery is going to come up today. It's a family, a family of God's followers. And it's a field. It's a mission field. And we're going to really see what that mission field looks like today. And then how does it end? How does this interlude end? It ends just right into the seventh trumpet. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 10 is a setup for chapter 11. Chapter 10 kind of lays the groundwork, if you will, for chapter 11. And we don't have time to read all of it um, because it's quite a bit of text. So um, if you haven't been following along in the podcast, I would encourage you to do that. Every week we're telling you about this just so we get new followers every week. The podcast is three words, a AREVELATIONCONVERSATION.COM. And my friend Tim and I, Tim Reed and I, we're just walking through the entire book of Revelation, verse by verse, in a conversational way, back and forth. And I just want to take a second and say, well done to you guys. You know, we can look at the stats. We can see how many people are, are watching that or listening to that. And so many of you have joined in and engaged the book. And it, it excites Tim and I, not because everybody's listening to us, but that means most people that listen to it are getting something out of it, right? So we're learning more about Jesus together, and that, that just excites us. So, so I hope you continue to track with the podcast. We're doing about two chapters a week. Again, next week, chapters 12 and 13. Well, here we go. John 
chapter, um, John, Revelation chapter 10, written by John, um, chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel, a mighty angel appears two or three times in the book of Revelation. I want to see a mighty angel. The vision here is, is, is quite amazing. He has this scroll and it's open. It's most likely the same scroll as we saw in chapter 5. And then skip down to verse 7, really important. Actually, just before verse 7, the angel, the angel tells John, there will be no more delay. The end's coming. That's the seventh trumpet. Look at verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. And you read that and you go, I wonder what the mystery of God is. Short answer, Jesus Colossians 2, 2, Jesus is the mystery. The work of the cross will be accomplished at the end of the, the passage in the seventh trumpet. And it was announced to the prophets and surfeits uh, beforehand in the rest of the Bible. Remember, remember, always remember that the book of Revelation is the last part of our Bible. It's the last part of the canon. It's the final revelation that we get in written form. So then we get to verse 9. And this is kind of getting a little bit bizarre. The angel gives John some more instructions. He says, take it and eat it. Take and eat the scroll. That's kind of wild to, to imagine, right? I've always, you know, I'm a little weird. I wonder how long it took, right? Like, it's got to be pretty big. But anyway, he said, take and eat the scroll. It'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And John complies. He does it. He eats the scroll, and it tastes as sweet as honey, but it does turn his stomach sour. Well, what's going on with that imagery? Because that is imagery, right? The scroll tastes good. What that's about is that it's the, it's the word of God. The scroll is the plan of God. Most scholars believe that the contents of the scroll are God's good plan of redemption and rescue of the world and how that's going to roll out. But it also will turn your stomach sour, why is that? Well, because along the way, along the way to full redemption, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be persecution and hardship and tough times to live through. Sickness, disease, wars, famines, all that stuff. In a nutshell, before Jesus comes back, we still have evil to contend with. We've been talking about this week to week, right? We live in an evil world and we know it. We just have to look around and open our eyes. But in the midst of that evil world, we, the church, we have a role. We have a mission, and that's to be a faithful witness, a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Okay, with that as a setup, now we turn to chapter 11. And I want to tell you before we get into this, Chapter 11 is tough. It just is. One of the things that all, if you read all the commentaries you can find on, on Re, the book of Revelation, all the commentators say, this chapter is the hardest chapter. And I think that's interesting because chapter 20 is also really hard. But they say, chapter 11, it's the hardest. It's the most difficult. So my job today, my assignment, if you will, is to attempt to take all this stuff and hopefully boil it down to some summary statements that make sense to you so you can go forth in your life with some meaning out of chapter 11. So it starts out and it says, John is told to measure the temple of God. Remember temple is the house, the temple of God. That's a reference to the church. 
And to measure it is a symbol in the Old Testament of protection. So what's happening here is John's talking about the church being protected. But then he talks about the measuring excluding the outer court. Well, that's most likely a reference to the persecuted church, which isn't protected physically, but it is protected spiritually. And, and listen to this. This is what I mean by that. Followers of Jesus, despite all kinds of trials and persecutions, are still victorious in the Lamb, Jesus, if we follow him. So that's what's going on here. Church, you may suffer persecution, but you still have victory in Jesus. Now, um, as, we, as we talk about this next verse, I want to make sure that you don't get too confused and distracted because this slide that's coming up right now starts with verse 2 it talks about 42 months the holy city is trampled and then we're going to see in this chapter in the next couple of chapters there's a whole bunch of references to the time period of three and a half years because 42 months 1260 days that's three and a half years and then back in daniel and also in revelation there's this interesting frame time Times and a half a time. Like, well, what is that? Time is one. Times is two. So now we have two more. So you have three. Half a time, half. So time, times, and half a time is also another way of saying three and a half years. So I have all these references to three and a half years. The point I want you to get is we think that they're all the same time period. The holy city is trampled. The two witnesses. The woman in the wilderness coming next week. It's the same time period. And remember, three and a half is exactly half. Of seven. Seven's complete and perfect. Three and a half is a symbol of persecution and trial. And that's what I want you to remember today. You don't have to worry about all these crazy ways to say three and a half. Every time you read any of them, just think in your brain, this is a time of trial and persecution. Now, I know what some of you are doing. You're going, but when? When is this time of trial and persecution? And there's a debate on that. Some think it's a literal three and a half years right before Jesus comes back at the end of time. Others take it more symbolically. I happen to be in this camp, and it, I think it's a time of persecution from the cross to the second coming. And I believe that because the church has been persecuted since day one and continues to be persecuted. persecuted. So I think the important takeaway from this whole three and a half year time reference is this. So li listen to this if you haven't heard anything else about this three and a half year thing. I believe in my heart of hearts after reading tons of, tons of references on this that the who and the what are way more important than the when. Don't worry about the when because there's debate on that and no one can solve that debate. But the who or what What's going on here is the church is getting persecuted. Okay, and then verse 3, it says, I will appoint my two witnesses. Well, who are they? What are they? And this is where it starts to get really challenging. And it, we get some images coming at us really, really fast. It's kind of like if you've ever driven in a snowstorm and the snow is hitting your windshield and you, you can't decide if you should have your lights on low or high because you're just kind of blinded by these images coming at you. And the images that are coming at us right now are the two olive trees in this story. There's two olive trees and there's two lampstands. And then there's a, there's a person that says that has power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. Well, that sounds like Elijah from the Old Testament. And there's another person that has power to turn the waters into blood and strikes the earth with every kind of plague. Well, that sounds a little bit like Moses. And if you've read your gospel stories and you think, oh, Elijah and Moses, I remember they were together at another point in time. And you're right. 
Gospel of Matthew, the transfiguration, when Jesus' face gets bright as the sun and his clothes get white as white can be. And the two witnesses there are Elijah and Moses. Really fascinating that that's used again here in uh, the Revelation. So most, most say that the two witnesses are modeled after Moses and Elijah, and most commentators believe that the lampstand imagery refers to the church because it always refers to the church in the book of Revelation, and olive trees, olive oil is often a figure of the Holy Spirit. So that's a lot of imagery that I just threw at you in six verses. So let's summarize it. This is the summary statement. You can take all that and summarize it into this. The two witnesses are a symbol of the one church modeled after the powerful witness of Moses and Elijah. So when you're, next time you read through the chapter 11, just in your brain say, the two witnesses are the church, and you'll do really well. And you might be asking, why is there two witnesses? Well, the Old Testament reference there is that for legal testimony in the Old Testament, you needed two witnesses. So remember, the role of the church is to be a faithful witness, and its witness needs to be true, even to the point of being legally true, because that's how important and powerful it is. So, I know I'm going fast. You guys still with me? Yeah? You got it? Okay, there's, that wasn't very enthusiastic. So, you still with me? Yes. Okay, right. So, the church, faithful witness. The two witnesses represent the church. Let's, let's press on. There's even more important imagery coming. Um, if you remember at the end of chapter 10 where, where John eats the scroll when he gets to his stomach, it's going to be sour. Here comes the sour part. Verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. That's sour. Attack, overpower, and kill. And this is the first mention of the beast in the Revelation. Now, I, I want to tell you a little bit of a tip. When you read the book of Revelation, John does this all the time. He throws out a term, doesn't really define it until like two chapters later. He does that all the time. So here he talks the beast out of the abyss. We're going to find out a lot about the beast out of the abyss in chapter 13. But for right now, all we have to do is think beast equals evil power. That's just know that for now. The beast is the evil power. We'll find more about that in chapter 13. And in fact, what we'll find out in chapter 13, 12 and 13, is there's an unholy trinity that's imitating the holy trinity. In God's kingdom, it's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the evil kingdom, the holy trinity is Satan, the dragon, the antichrist, the first beast, and the false prophet, the second beast. That's the unholy trinity. And that's to come in the next week or two, in the next couple chapters. Now, as we talk about faithful witness and this beast overpowering people and attacking them, I, I want to just pause here as we go through this so, so quickly and make sure we're on the same page with this word witness or testimony because we live in America, right? We live in a, in a place where some church words become very, very common. And many of you, I'm thinking, and I'm, I, I fall in this same trap, when someone says witness or testimony, the first thing I think of is, oh, they're just telling somebody about Jesus, and is that a good thing? Absolutely, that's a good thing. If you are a good witness and give testimony to Jesus, keep on doing that. Keep on telling people about Jesus. But is that all being a faithful witness is? No. The story of Revelation is actually much deeper than that. It's to be a suffering witness. 
a witness that's willing to be persecuted. It's a witness that's willing to take a stand for something. I'm not just going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I'm taking a stand for it. And I'm going to have persecution and hardship. And I might even suffer death. And that's happening, you know, around the world every day. Christians somewhere are dying because of their faith. Persecuted unto death. And I was talking to Tim Reed, my podcast partner, this morning about this. I could, there, it just seems like we're not quite there. And we decided after we talked about it, there's even another level of being a faithful witness. And this is what I really want you to hear, brothers and sisters, that we aren't only to be a suffering faithful witness. We are to be a witness that when we suffer, when we're persecuted, we still love the ones persecuting us. That sounds easy, doesn't it? That's insanely hard. But what's our example? Jesus on the cross suffering an incredible, humiliating, mocking death, painful, naked, bloody, says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's on the cross suffering more persecution and in the penalty of death by the cross, yet he's still loving. That's our call is to love people like Christ loved people. And it's easy to do it when they're our friends. It's a little harder to do it when they're not our friends, and it's really hard to do it when they're persecuting us because of our faith. But we're still called to be a faithful, faithful witness and do that. So then verse 8, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. And I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, I went, holy cow, John. You got the great city, which, by the way, again, John doesn't tell us what that is until later. But a bunch of times, I think it's eight times later, we'll find out the great city is Babylon. Or for the first century uh, Romans, um, for the first century Christians, Rome, the Romans were the Babylonians. Babylon becomes an archetype to represent evil kingdom. And Sodom is a symbol of depravity. And Egypt is a symbolic of persecution and slavery and Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. That's the, that's the city he's referring to there. So you read that and you go, wow, John, are you geographically, geographically challenged? I mean, for one, Egypt's not a city. It's a country. So why do we got all this stuff in here? And, it, and it's just confusing, right? And it reminds me of a time in our family we were playing this game called Catchphrase. I don't know if you know it, but my daughter and one of her friends, uh, my daughter Jamie and Stephanie, uh, one of her friends, we were, we were playing this and, uh, with my family, and they were there, and you, you have this thing you pass around, and it gives you these clues, and you're supposed to say the answer without saying certain words, and, and uh, Stephanie read this clue to my daughter. It says, it's that city in Paris, and all of us are going, well, that, that's not a great clue, Stephanie. <laughs> There's no city in Paris, but Jamie blurts out, London, and, <laughs> And he says, you're right, that's it. I'm like, what just happened? I mean, that makes no sense. And when we read this, we go, this makes no sense. So let me tell you what's going on here. We think John is merging all of these cities and a country, Egypt, into one big image, archetype, Babylon. So from now on, every time you see the word Babylon, you want to think evil kingdom. That is depraved. And we're going to see it through the rest of Revelation. We're going to see it big time in chapter 17, 18, and the first half of 19. And Babylon becomes an archetype for all human kingdoms. Because all human kingdoms become like Babylon. 
Babylon is, to the first century reader, the ba their Babylon is Rome. And until Jesus returns, don't miss this, until Jesus returns, there will be many, many Babylons. This is the, sor the, the very, very deep, sorrowful, sour part of the scroll. And we live in a Babylon now. You know, I hate to say it, but we do. Uh, my first indication that we were living in a Babylon was in a seven-year-old boy. That uh, was my first knowledge of an evil world. Uh, it was 1967. We grew up in New Jersey. We went to go see the movies. We're going to go see some Disney movie. Me and my two brothers. My mom is driving us there. We turn the corner, and the road is just littered with tanks and the National Guard, heavily armed soldiers, just blocking the way. And I was a seven-year-old boy. You're like, yo, cool. This is better than the movies. But later, as I heard the story of what happened, there were violent riots uh, over, over all sorts of racial tensions. There, there was a police officer that was brutally beaten to death on that day. And I started to find out that there's some evil in this world. And maybe you're here today as a seven-year-old boy and you witnessed what happened in our city of Portland in the last year and you're realizing there's evil in the world or you're a parent of a young child and I'm a grandparent of four little ones all under the age of four and I'm going to have to teach them about the evil world that we live in. Now, don't, under, don't misunderstand me. I absolutely love living in America. I've lived in other countries. I like living in America. I'm actually a vet. I served the country for nine years in the Air Force. There's wonderful things about the U.S. And we should celebrate those good things. And we should embrace those good things. And we should keep on doing those good things. And we should keep on giving to other nations the best we can. But we have to realize that all human kingdoms have sin because all humans sin. Therefore, all human kingdoms become Babylon's. Another way to say it is human kingdoms are not the kingdom of God. A year ago, Jose and I were talking about this when there was all that political strife. Like, as a church, what's our stance? How do we help people with this? And, and I love the way Jose says this. He says, we have to not mix up the kingdom of America with the kingdom of God. They are not the same. The kingdom of God, our king, is Jesus, King Jesus infallible, truthful, always does the right thing. Know this, no nation will ever love you like God loves you. God never fails. He always, always loves you. That's his posture of love. I think I learned most of my actual theology from my grandkids. And my little three and our, my oldest grandchild is almost four. He'll be four in May, Patrick. And he's just a lover. He's just, like, he's just a loving kid. And he used to, he always learns to say, I'll see you later, Papa. That's what they call me, Papa. I'll see you later, Papa. Well, last week, I learned something from this little four-year-old kid. Instead of saying, I'll see you later, Papa, he said, I'll love you later, Papa. I'm like, oh, man, there's some truth in that. For Patrick, my grandson, to see you is to love you. And that's what it is in the kingdom of God. When God sees you, he loves you. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of America. So we need to separate that. Okay, let's summarize what we learned so far in chapter 11. The church 
depicted as a witness, modeled after Moses and Elijah, enters persecution. Some are attacked by the beast, killed. What happens next? Verses 9 and 10. For three and a half days, I think the three and a half days is actually in contrast to the three and a half years. For three and a half days, some of every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. How, how gruesome is that? The beast kills the witness and people of the great city, the Babylons, refuse them burial. Very, very humiliating. But then a dramatic shift, and I love this part. Verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them. Picture being in this scene. They stood on their feet. These people dead for three and a half feet, uh, three and a half feet, three and a half days. They stand up. And the people were looking on, terror struck them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies looked on. That's our destiny, church. That's where we're heading to come up to be in the presence of the Lord. Now it's a spectacular vision for sure. And the two witnesses representing the church having suffered this persecution, they're killed, they're humiliated, mocked, but God steps in. And the faithful witness is rewarded and enters the presence of God. That is a good, good destiny. But you might be saying, cool story, what's the point? Huge point. But we have to step back to end of last week, at the end of the trumpets, at, remember the demon locust and the demon Calvary, at the end of those, those judgments, they did not repent. Do you remember that? They did not repent. But here... Look what happens. Notice the effect of the church's faithful witness. Look at verse 13. Right when the witnesses go up to heaven in a cloud, there was a, quote, a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. So at the end, there's still going to be judgment. There's still going to be the day of wrath. There's still going to be the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. This is a clear sign of judgment. But it's also merciful. And why do I say that? Because compared to the Old Testament references, Listen to the podcast. Only 10% of the city is destroyed instead of 90%. And only 7,000 died instead of a bunch. So believe it or not, this is a merciful judgment. And then verse 13 is key. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And if you haven't heard anything else I've said today, please stop and look at this, listen to this, write it down, whatever. When the church gives witness, faithful, true witness about Jesus Christ, people give glory to God. That's amazing to me. All those spectacular judgment trumpets of the last couple chapters didn't lead to repentance, but when the church is a faithful witness, it leads to people giving glory to God. Why? Because when you and I are persecuted and yet we still love the people persecuting us, people notice, and they go, this is what I want to be part of, a part of, and we give glory to God. This is the role of the church, to live like Christ and give testimony to him. That's the content of the scroll that John received from the angel back in chapter 10. Another way to summarize this, if this helps you, uh, Tim Mackey of the, of the Bible Project, he's just brilliant with summarizing stuff, and he says this about this passage. Tim says, the scroll reveals the church's mission, imitate the loving sacrifice of the lamb. Imitate the loving sacrifice of the lamb. And then God's mercy brings repentance. 
and I would add where the loving witness of the church works where the judgments didn't. So if you're a note taker, you said, okay, you said write down role and destiny. We've got a little bit of destiny, but is there more to this destiny? And there is, and, and that's the seventh trumpet. And the sour part's over, good news, right? Now we're going to talk about some glory. This, this is cool. Look at verse 15 of chapter 11. It says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, and if you ever want a tattoo, this is it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. The kingdom of the world has become past tense. At this point in the revelation, the seventh trumpet, it's over. We've reached the end. In theory, John could again ended the revelation here. But we're only halfway through. We have the second half of the book starting next week because John's going to reveal even more about the kingdom of God to us. But this is a picture of our destiny as followers of Jesus. On the day of the Lord, the evil of this world is judged and removed. God's going to bring an end to the evil system. And we're going to be able to say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. Another little tidbit I think is just fascinating if you look at verse 17 it says this we give thanks to you lord oh god lord god almighty and look at what it says the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power now earlier in the book back in chapter one it says the one who is who was and is to come but the is to come is missing here why is it missing here because he's come he's come in this part of the story the seventh trumpet is about the Lord's day, he has come. So, last thing and then we'll finish up today. Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18, tucked into this middle of this description of the, of the new heaven time in the seventh trumpet, we see this fascinating description. It says this, verse 18. The time has come for judging the dead, the day of the Lord, day of judgment, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. And I want us to take a moment and just think about what this actually says. Who does God reward? Well, it lists three groups of people. It lists his servants. It lists people who revere his name. And it lists people both great and small. So hopefully, I'm hoping that the message of Revelation 10 and 11 is a little more clear to you now. The role of the church is to give witness, faithful witness, testimony. And we are imitate Jesus by being a loving sacrifice, just like he was, even to the point of death, if called to do that. But then our destiny is to receive God's reward, which is life in the kingdom of heaven, more on that by the end of Revelation, but it's a eternal life in his presence. That's as good as life gets. You've probably noticed that church is hard at times. It is, right? Why is church hard at times? Because serving people can be hard because people are hard. Sacrifice is hard. Loving sacrifice is even harder. Lovingly sacrificing to people who hate you and mock you is 
really hard. But that's what we're called to do. That's our role. We're to compassionately share the good news with all people. And we have this perfect, perfect model in Jesus, the perfect faithful servant, the Lamb of God. Well, the question is, who do we revere? Do we revere Jesus? Let's remember this. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's on the throne with God all throughout Revelation. What has he done? He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. Jesus conquered. He's victorious over death and over evil. And what will he do? He's going to rescue us into his kingdom. That's what the seventh trumpet is all about. But I want to end with this, and I'll have the worship band start making their way up here. But don't miss this part. Who else is rewarded? Both great and small. And part of the culture of America is we tend to idolize and worship so-called great people. We worship and idolize the great basketball player, the great football player, the great celebrity movie actor, the great president, the great congressman, the great, even the great pastor, the great book writer, the great dancer, the, on and on and on. We tend to put, quote, great in our worldly eyes. We put those people on a, on a pedestal. But what about the small people? What about the small people? Most of us are small people, right? I'm not famous. I'm not great about anything. I'm just, a, I'm like you, right? Most of us are small people. But I want to tell you an illustration about a particularly wonderful small person. My mom passed away years ago from ovarian cancer. And at the time she spent in the hospital, uh, she had a lot of operations. So she was in there a while. And one day I went to visit her and my mom said, Stephen, you got to meet my little angel. I'm like, oh, mom, she's on some pretty heavy narcotics. Is she hallucinating? So I'm asking, she goes, no, you got to meet Maria. She's the cleaning lady. She cleans the room. She's my angel. And I'm like, oh, I got to meet this person. So I meet, I meet Maria, and she is literally tiny, quiet, meek person. And I ask her, you know, just tell me about yourself. She's been cleaning hospital rooms in the oncology ward for like 40 years. I'm like, oh, that's a sacrifice. But she seems so, her soul was just happy. She was joyful despite a pretty tough job. And I, I asked her, Maria, what's your, you know, what's your secret? What do you do? And she just says, you know, as I mop and as I clean, I pray for the patients who are in this bed. I'm sorry, but she said, I, I learned their names. I know your mom's name is Pat. And I put, when I clean Pat's bed, when I clean her room, I pray for her. I pray that she knows Jesus. I pray that she's comforted and that she's that she's willing to, to live life with joy in her, in her last days. And I, I don't know about you, but that person's great. Small in the world eyes, but great. And we can do that. Little tiny things are huge in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name, right? We can do that. What's a practical step? What's one small thing we could do this week to serve Jesus by serving other people. If you're just drawing a total blank right now, let me give you a couple ideas. If you're not signed up for the weekly, sign up for the weekly, but on there, or if you go on to the 26 West Church website, 
There are a couple of Zoom calls coming up this Thursday night at 7 and this Sunday night at 7. And the Zoom calls tell you about, you don't have to commit, they just tell you about two different things the church is involved in. Project Homelessness Connect and Refugee Care Collective. My wife Vicki and I signed up for one of those Zoom calls. And we're going to find out about these organizations and maybe we'll engage and help serving people that way. But maybe the Holy Spirit's told you another way. Maybe you're, maybe you're a cleaning person and you're just going to start praying for the people that are in the house that you're cleaning, like Maria. Whatever it is, let's do something for other people this week for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you to help us understand this passage, to bring the truths of this passage to light, embed them in our heart, mind, and soul, that you are the faithful witness that we are to model our life after. May we give you glory this week as we serve other people. Amen.